pleased to see um, most of you are back. I did think that this would be a difficult session for you to make, but I think it's a very important session. And so you may have seen that Morris has changed a little. He has a very stripy jersey on. Morris is in Pretoria at the moment. He had something urgently urgent to deal with. And so lucky, luckily we've got Christian to, to stand in for him. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm just going to take you through Marius's slides and just focus on the salient aspects of the uh, presentation. This is just roughly the agenda, what we're going to go through. The team we have at the moment, we're fully staffed and we're quite happy with that. So I think your SLC should be complied with. Uh, what are the applications we consider? We look at valuations, exemptions, surplus, transfer of employer surplus, section 14s, and also all the associated extensions. Basically, the main focus at the moment, post-surplus valuations, and there we have the different categories in terms of which we uh, look at these. And also, most importantly, we brought in an SLC for these valuation reports. We aim to look at them within 60 days of receipt. But more concerning to us are the pended cases. Why do we pend um, valuation reports? There's just roughly 72% uh, cases are pended at the moment. Which means that, you know, it means that there are queries on these, on these cases. And until those queries have been resolved, we won't be able to do the acceptances. And, and it is concerning to us because we want to minimize the number of pended cases. And I think from our side, we've really put in a lot of effort to step up the measures we take not to unnecessarily pend cases from our side, but we do find the quality of valuation submitted unfortunately doesn't meet the mark in all instances. Uh, we do also believe that the PGN 201, which is currently out for consultation, will also make a big difference um, in, in basically educating valuators to, to perhaps, uh, you know, step up on the quality of, of their work in terms of when it comes to us assessing it. At the moment, we're meeting the SLC by 97%, and we're happy with that. I think you should be happy too. One of the most sort of striking issues that we find on post-SAB valuations, and maybe I should just qualify what I've said earlier on, we acknowledge that the valuator is merely reporting to us what has happened. So it's not as if the valuator is accountable for uh, inappropriate decisions or actions taken by the trustees, but we do also rely on the valuator's ability to, to in, a, in a way, sort of manage the process. Um, I mean, the valuator is a professional appointed in his personal capacity, and, and we've placed a lot of faith in, in the work that the valuator brings to us. So these are the issues most common to valuation queries. We find that reserve accounts are not in rules. We've also put forward an amendment now to compel funds to put their reserve accounts in rules. Uh, the fact that the apportionment scheme is not uh, implemented as approved, that uh, creates a lot of legal challenges, uh, specifically whether you should be going to court or not to have the approval set aside. Funds taking contribution holidays, and it's not funded from the employer surplus account. Pension increase policy, I'm going to touch on that just now. Uh, cost overruns, and once again, this is sort of an administrative aspect which the evaluators made a reporting on, uh, but we're also just finding trustees not really, you know, coming to the party with that. And then also, if you've got previous queries outstanding, uh, that will prevent your current valuations of, of being accepted. Okay, surplus, roughly we've approved close to 50 billion to date, and we anticipate there's about 160 still outstanding. We're working very hard on getting those to us, just, just in a summary of where we are. Uh, also quite a few pended cases, but we are actively engaging with those funds to, to, to bring those to closure. We've put some amendments forward to the Pension Funds Amendment Bill, and hopefully it will be promulgated by the end of this year, and by that we will be able to bring surplus to a close in that we can appoint tribunals even to null schemes. And also, the other sort of more important change there is that where there are changes to the scheme, in, 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 the, in the case where your post-surplus evaluation reveals that there, are, there were data errors or things are taken into account, rather than having to go to court, we can actually then withdraw the approval in certain instances. Okay, also Directive 3 is going to be reviewed then as a consequence of the promulgation of the Act. Uh, we're going to maybe make the forms a bit more user-friendly. Remember, we still have a whole bunch of bargaining council funds that need to undergo surplus apportionments. Bulk submissions no longer be allowed. Uh, we will also then prescribe the conditions in terms of which we can withdraw these certificates and also just update the whole directive in line with the Amendment Act. Okay, pension increase policy uh, interpretation note. 
we did find some problems in the way in which valuators applied the provisions of, of the pension increase policy. Um, and by this interpretation note, we really aim to clarify the obligations of the fund, i.e. the trustees in setting and complying with its policy. And where they're not able to comply, at least be able to justify those issues of non-compliances. I'm not going to repeat the act. That's basically the premise on, on which the whole interpretation note is based. And what we found, in essence, was that uh, we're not necessarily happy where you're using fixed uh, post-retirement discount rates to fund for your pension increases. And then, as a consequence, we issued the guidance note or the interpretation note. And you will know if your valuations were queried whether this is an issue that's uh, relevant to you or not. Um, that's just the example of, of a case of non-compliance. CPI in this instance at 6%, so your pension increase policy set at 75% of CPI. Pre-retirement rate 8.5%, post-retirement 6 So in other words, you find that you, there's inadequate funding for your pension increases. Okay. Do you believe this approach is acceptable? If you quickly want to answer the questions, the fact that you use a fixed post-discount rate, which is not linked to your pension increase policy as a as a measure of CPI. Okay, still some of you that uh, don't necessarily agree with us, but that's fine. We'll take it as it comes. Okay, so to go back to the presentation. I mean, what are the issues or what are the consequences of, of the actions in, in the example we've just gone through? You know, there's some fiduciary issues in, in the line of the trustees, sort of also choosing funding parameters which makes it extremely unlikely or even impossible to, to achieve the targeted increase. It also has some knock-on effects on the contribution rate and also affects reasonable benefit expectations. So just to give you another example of where we believe that, you know, the fund is complying, same CPI assumption. I think the important thing is that it needs to be reviewed at each valuation in line with the changes in, in sort of, you know, financial indicators. Sorry, the, this question is now based on the revised example um, where the fund is complying with the interpretation notes. So I think we can actually skip this question because it will probably be the opposite of the previous one. Okay, so in this case you've got uh, the compliance with the fiduciary obligations. Um, your funding parameters achieve the targeted increase. You've got correct estimates of your contribution rate, and you can also meet RBEs. Going forward from a regulatory uh, point of view, I think we will be continuing to query the instances where we don't believe that the evaluator is applying the provisions of the Act in a correct manner. Okay, then why is it important also for trustees to be part of this whole process? because you can see the points on the screen there, what the duties of the trustees are in this instance, and it's also elaborated on in the, in the note. Okay, so going forward, the evaluator needs to consult with his or her client to make sure that there's proper planning. Okay, that's, that's, the, that's the starting point. From then on, you basically make sure that you fund properly, and therefore, you need to make sure that your basis also takes into account the investment approach so that at the end, you've got a reasonable likelihood of achieving the target pension increase. Okay. Next issue we're encountering at the moment, this is quite a technical argument, but it's unfortunately, we've seen cases like this. I just want to bring it to your attention. You've got, it's, a, it's, it's about the approval of a surplus apportionment scheme in terms of how does your surplus scheme award the benefits to these stakeholders. So what does your surplus scheme say about how the surplus to be apportioned will be applied for the benefit of the affected stakeholders? In other words, there's two options. You can either put it in your MSA and then later on just try to distribute it, or you basically crystallize the liability at SAD, but use your conduit, your MSA as a conduit to pass through your through your surplus liabilities. You would know the way, acting, the, the way in which the act is worded at the moment, you have to use your MSA as a conduit, even if you want to make distributions in terms of future surplus. But we are changing that going forward, but that's what we're dealing with at the moment. So basically, you've got an approved 15B scheme, which awards benefits to its members. And once it's apportioned to these individuals, it effectively becomes your li liability for the fund and or a debt. There are some legal interpretation issues, whether it's a liability or a debt. And the MSA purely used as a conduit. Okay? 
But now we're finding that the evaluator continues to show these liabilities as being included in the MSA. And we believe that it's an inaccurate representation of the financial position of the fund. So rather than showing the money you know, in a contingency reserve, it should be reflected as a liability. Okay. Do you agree with this view? Audience participation. In other words, the MSA is a conduit and that you should reflect your 15B benefits as liabilities. Okay. It's very encouraging. We can move on to the next slide. Okay. The problem that arises afterwards is that when your fund goes into a deficit situation, 15H requires then that your credit balance in your member surplus account and your employer surplus account in the same proportion must be applied to clear the deficits. In other words, you could be sitting with surplus benefits that were awarded as a result of the approval of a 15B scheme, but because you're keeping them in your MSA, when, when the fund then goes into a subsequent deficit, 15H asks you then to use those to clear the deficit. Okay, so once again, I'm not going to focus on the Act, but I mean, there's 15H. If a fund has credit balances in member MSA, ESA, and the fund is found to have a deficit following an actual valuation, including a valuation carried out for the purpose of distributing assets on liquidation, such credit balances shall be reduced in the same proportion by the amount of the deficit. So what that means is if you've got a subsequent deficit, uh, just reading this on face value, and you've got money in your MSA, whether it belongs to people or not, you need to use that to clear the deficit. So the next question we have is do you believe that Section 15B surplus housed in the MSA should be ring-fenced? In other words, that it should be immune from, from the provisions of 15H. Okay, so about a third of you believe that it shouldn't be ring-fenced. In other words, if the fund took its time to have its surplus apportionment scheme approved and the money is housed in the MSA and there's a subsequent deficit, then those members should forfeit their surplus um, allocations. We can move on to the presentation, please. And that's really the issue. Okay, and the solution to this question lies in the way in which the scheme was approved. We've got two cases in question which we are currently scrutinizing. And I say, I mean, it may... Okay, is this the second one? I think we can skip this one. Sorry. Okay, so in other words, can a fund use 15B surplus allocated to members to fund a deficit arising in the future? And that's the... And I mean, there's a whole argument about equitability and fairness. But once again, these cases we're dealing with on a case-by-case -case basis, but also... If you are submitting valuations where you're showing your surplus allocations as liabilities or as balances in your MSA, we're going to be questioning that. Because as we said earlier on, we don't believe it's a, a correct reflection of the financial condition of the fund, and it becomes a basis for rejecting the valuation report. Okay, I'm quickly going to focus on the sort of amendments in the Pension Fund Amendment Bill. And I'm only focusing on the main issues that might affect you. Okay, the issue of prescribing an actual basis to demonstrate regulatory solvency. The purpose there is purely to put in an enabling provision. So should the time arise that we want to go that route, we can do so. This is not something that we're just going to sort of randomly come up with a, with a basis and expect all funds to comply. There will be a very sort of clear consultative process with the industry players before we, before we go that route. And it probably touches on the issues that Arthur raised earlier on about solvency too. Initially, we had a definition in of financial soundness that has been removed. We've now also created an enabling provision in Section 18, which deals with funds not in financially sound condition, and that will also allow us then an opportunity to prescribe conditions, probably based on, on, on what we currently have as PF66. We've also aligned the definitions of minimum individual reserve in a DC category of fund to allow contributions not to purely be only offset against, uh, sorry, expenses to be offset against contributions. In other words, where you don't have regular contributions coming in, you can still have a mechanism to allow for your expenses. And also, we've broadened the basis in terms of which we can reject valuation reports. So now your stakeholder interest is also becoming an aspect that needs to be taken into account. We've also allowed for the wider interpretation of fund return. You'll recall that we did have an interpretation note on that. So we have actually now aligned the act in line with that. Next one, the valuator. Um, must be a resident of South Africa. Just by show of hands, does any, anybody have an issue with this provision? Okay, if you do have issues with this, come and talk to us. But, I mean, this is the way we're going. And there are reasons for this, which we've also put forward in the sort of motivation to the amendments. And then also the whistleblowing provisions that are now going to be applicable to evaluators as well. You know, basically the, the, the sections of the Act applicable to principal officers, 
now also applicable to principal officers, sorry, to evaluators. Okay, circular 135, we've uh, basically run into trouble with that circular. So for now, we will not be issuing that circular. Uh, it's placed on hold. Um, there's some policy issues that first need to be uh, cleared with National Treasury, and once we've got uh, clarity on those policy issues, we can move forward on this. So please do not implement the provisions of 135. We are aware that certain pension lawyers um, advise their clients uh, in, 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 in you know, certain ways in dealing with sort of unplanned for member benefits, and um, you're welcome to follow that route, but know that we will probably question it when it comes to us, or at least you know, sort of engage with the fund if there are issues in, in that sense. So unfortunately, we're not able to implement this, even though we do believe that this is a very sort of uh, necessary uh, way going forward in dealing with all the unplanned for member benefits. Um, I don't know how many of you have actually gone through all the amendments. The process, as far as I understand now, it's back with Treasury, and they're basically making all the final amendments and then going to publish it for a final set of comments. Uh, and also then, you know, as part of the parliamentary process, we will also be able to go and make representations yourself. Uh, and once that's over and done with, you know, it will go through promulgation. So that's where we are at the moment. For those of you that have actually studied the amendments, do you believe that these amendments have addressed all the concerns raised by industry? Even though it's going to be published for, uh, for a final set of comments, you can still then make further representations. So it's not as if it's the end of the road but we've actually worked through all the comments that were received, including the submission made by the actual society. Is the actual society going to be sending a delegation to Parliament to participate in the public hearings, you know, given that two-thirds of you don't believe that the concerns have been addressed? Because that's really what we want to avoid. We want to avoid the stumbling blocks right at the end. So if you've got serious issues about this, rather come and engage with us than holding up the process at that point in time. Okay, we can move back to the presentation. Okay, PBSS, uh, this is uh, something which Marius has a very sort of dear involvement with, and he's basically put together some slides just to create an awareness of PBSS. And um, there's a video clip that he wants to play. Only you. I am pleased to announce that the next year colloquium of the International Actuarial Association will be a joint event based in Lyon of three of its sections. The section for investment, financial risk and ERM, enterprise risk management. The section for pension benefits and social security and the life section. This scientific and professional actuarial international event will be a major three-day colloquium. It will be associated with quality social activities provided by one of the most important French terroirs, the Institut des Actuaires is proud to organize this event in partnership with l'Institut des Sciences Financières et d'Assurance based in Lyon. As you may know, Lyon is one of the greatest cities in France, also known as the capital des Gaules and famous for its cuisine and wines. It is located in the highly dynamic Rhône-Alpes district in the heart of France and will therefore be a great location for a great international colloquium. We are looking forward to meeting many of you on 21st to 26th of June 2013. Got the different sections under IAA, different sections, and then under PBS, you know, all the different member associations of which we've just given actual societies an example and the faculty and institute. Okay, so audience response question, why are you not a member? And these are the options. Okay, now you know. <laughs> so there's no excuse. Can we, we can move back to the presentation, please. Just some background. Uh, created November 2003, special interest section of the IAA, and non-actuaries may also be involved. Its scope it covers public programs, private pension plans, mutual benefit organizations, commercial insurance, pension company contracts, annuity share options, and other employee benefit provision. It provides the platform for discussing technical and public policy issues, and this is through sort of individual actuaries, not government organizations an opportunity to generate research and also catalysts for building the intellectual capital of the profession. What are the benefits of joining? They've got what they call a virtual library. There's a reference list. You can make contact with actuaries worldwide, which obviously they work in this, probably in the same field as you do. You have a subscription to the Aston Bulletin. They've got the colloquia, which you've just seen advertised for next year. And the cost is uh, 50 Canadian dollars per annum. 
and the actual society actually collects these subscriptions annually when you submit your subscription forms to the society. That's basically what I've got to share with you today. Uh, are there any questions? Okay. If there are no questions, thank you very much. Thanks. Okay. Um, Natasha is going to talk about uh, PGNs, and I'll maybe continue a bit on where we are. Now, you know we've, we've had a problem in updating PGN 201 for many years, and uh, we've, we've made some progress, and we took a few steps forward, and we had to take a few steps back. We've had a few drafts that circulated within the, uh, the, the um, subcommittee and then the Retirement Matters Committee. It went through to the employers, and it's now been out to comment to, the, to all actuaries. So we're going to try and finish that off as quickly as possible. Um, so Natasha will just explain to us how we're going to get there. Thanks, Natasha. All right. Uh, just a little bit of background. And just, I suppose, not only the PGN, the, the PGN subcommittee of the Retirement Matters Committee does other stuff other than the PGN. So just a little bit of what we've been up to and then just a little bit of detail of PGN 201. All right. So it's the subcommittee of the Retirement Matters Committee. By virtue of representation on the RMC, we do get fairly wide representation through the industry. All of the, the main employers, the large employers, including the insurance companies, are represented on the RMC. So we, we are able to get fairly wide feedback on issues, um, which are then effectively consolidated through, through the PGM subcommittee. And really, we obviously purpose is to draft and review the PGMs for wider distribution prior to adoption. And we also do facilitate comments on retirement funds related industry matters, like, for example, the, the FSB notes, etc. So in the last 12 months, we've commented and completed comments on the pension increase interpretation note, uh, the financial services amendment bill, um, there was issues on the treating customers fairly case, uh, PF 135, things that we've, uh, well, that's in finalization stage, PGN 201, and I'll talk about that later. And then Things that are in progress, there's the National Retirement, National Treasury Retirement Savings Document, which is uh, due for comment by the end of uh, this month, which we are in the process of finalizing, consolidating comment. There's a process where we're going through, we're reclassifying all the, the uh, guidance notes into standard of actual practice, which is, it covers all across all areas, not just retirement matters, but we're in the process of doing that. And then the other two uh, PGNs which do need attention, which we're going to be focusing on in the next little while, are PGN 203 for exemptions and the PGN, the accounting uh, valuations. All right, PGN 201. It's basically been, there's versions in my file dating back to 2003. I think Jeremy Andrew was involved in those days and he, he's carefully stepped down and it's, it's gradually got passed along. There was at one stage debates about having issuing a separate DB and DC note that was rejected. Then the surplus issues came about and to what extent those need to be brought in, those were then put in the, 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 the surplus PGNs. There's a whole lot of debate about whether we should include subsequent events and that's come in and come out. Uh, we got to a point where we were fairly close to finalizing and then we, we had a, a lot of difficulty with, with addressing what is the definition of financial soundness. There was a, then a version that was very principles-based, which was thrown out, uh, then the FSB issued board notice 149 of 2010, and that's we've had to, to review. So it has been a very long process in terms of getting to where we're at, but yeah, we, we, we hope we're at a, at a reasonably close place that, that we can get something that's finalized. The, the, the current version is dated 1998, so it is 14 years um, outdated. All right, so what have we done? Um, I'm just going to go for brief highlights of, of, the, of the changes. The current PGN actually refers to actual valuation reports and related topics. This is now a PGN just for actual valuation uh, reports only. We've obviously adopted the new classification in terms of it being a, a, a standard of actual practice. Previously, the, the, the notes listed all the details, references in the Act and all the you know PF66 and whatever. We've decided to, to just take a broad reference to the Act, the board notices, the interpretation notes, the PF circulars, etc., because otherwise it means that the Act has, to, or the PGN has to be updated every time uh, the FSB changes legislation. So we think it's, it's better just to have an overall enabling ref reference to, to the legislative requirements. As an additional purpose, we've added consistency, an attempt to try and get consistency between valuators and also for the, for the valuator itself to, 
to have consistency between valuations and between clients. There's an additional section on users and, and presentation of the report, which has been extended on. It was a little sort of thing at the end. We've now moved it earlier on in the, in the new draft. Uh, previously, the PGN listed all the components of the report. That's now been moved to an appendix and also just makes reference to, to Board Notice 149, um, which is ultimately the requirement that you need to adhere to. The objectives are generally broader, the new proposed objectives, catering for aspects like reserve accounts. There's a requirement to comment on the investment strategy, which is not in the existing PGN. Obviously, advice on minimum pension increases, which is a new, new requirement sub subsequent to the issuing uh, or the old one. Uh, DC funds aspects regarding to allocation or changes to aspects regarding allocation of returns and accounts. And the, the controversial issue which we've struggled with as, as, a, as a subcommittee is some people felt quite strongly that we should put reference to net replacement ratios, projection of, of individual benefits, etc. In the end, we've decided to remove those and rather address those with a separate PGN if necessary. We just felt that it's too it's too wide and potentially too controversial at this stage, and we'd like to get this, this PGN through. Assumptions and data, there's now reference to PF117, um, that your assumptions need to be consistent, and allowance for special circumstances um, as relevant funds closing, liquidating, um, for purposes other than assessing the ongoing financial soundness. There is special reference to the adoption of the post-retirement interest rate, basically also referencing to the, the FSB's interpretation note. That does permit the use of the equity risk premium. I know there's some, some comment that's, that's, that's not necessarily the approach, but there is a, a wide range of approaches out there, and we feel that we can't limit actuaries to, to only using, using one, one approach. There's some additional aspects relating to data checks and, and comment on sensitivity and risk factors surrounding the valuation basis. Suggestion of stochastic models, not necessarily prescribing the use of stochastic models, but giving an understanding of the sensitivity of the results. Included now, we make provision for minimum benefits at valuation date and at termination. And then again, in terms of the, 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 the issues, making sure your pension increases are linked to 14B. Obviously, the standard things of valuation of liabilities, that's there, that was there, remains there. In terms of the valuation of DC liabilities, there's included a provision to ensure asset liability matching at member level. And this really refers to if your, you know, your, uh, if your shares of fund are 100, you must have assets of 100 in that particular portfolio. Obviously added in a section on the notional pension accumulation amount, which was not there previously, which references to the, the applicable legislation, 14B, the, the PGN 205, um, pension increase interpretation note and requirements to describe your method and assumptions. A whole, another section included now, also related to contingency reserve accounts, obviously a motivation for the balances that are established, and what I've called the fundedness of these accounts, um, and, what, and what level action um, can be taken in, in that regard, additional contributions or release in terms of 15C and obviously then to look at your overall level of, of reserves in totality as well as each, each reserve individually. Valuation of assets, the, the existing PGN actually has a different section on valuation of assets for DBE and DC. You now look at the valuation of assets, DBE and DC together, and obviously consistent with your liabilities and reference to any mismatching must, must be included. We've removed issues regarding projection of benefits, uh, the reduction of contributions is now only with reference to an employer surplus account um, that's no longer part of the, the recommended contribution rate. And then some of the special circumstances have been moved and, and put elsewhere in the, in the note. We now distinguish between a fund being financially sound and a fund having an actual surplus. Financially sound would be a fund that has not necessarily uh, established all the recommended solvency reserve accounts, but can cover its best estimate liabilities an actual surplus obviously being uh, having assets in, in excess of all, all, the, all the recommended reserves. Obviously, re reference for debiting surplus accounts in terms of 15H. And as I said, a, D a DC financial soundness is only ensuring that, you know, if your shares of fund are 100, you must have 100 rand of assets. No reference to any financial soundness from the member's point of view in terms of net replacement ratio. 
sensitivity analysis and risk factors is again another section, and I, I did allude to that earlier, ensuring discussion on risks, understanding the, or making sure that the client understands the point estimate liability versus the ongoing and associated factors related to that. AOS section obviously now also links to 15C of the Act, and the actuaries need to be mindful that your AOS may be used in terms of distribution of 15C. Special circumstances, first valuation, small clients, incomplete data, etc., is now allowed for here. And as I said, here, here is where we, we, we allow for contribu contribution reductions linked to your employer surplus account. And then your special circumstances if is non-compliance with the board notice and the PGN. Okay, so I'm not going to go through this because the the in mindful of time, just the various components of the report are now addressed in um, Appendix 1. Just one or two to highlight. The assets linking as requirements of, as, the board, oh, as required by the board notice, not necessarily giving a breakdown of equity, properties, bonds, etc. That's not necessarily appropriate. Needing to show your ratio of pension accumulation amount to your pension liability and mentioning who your primary regulator is. Uh, including audited financial statements. Previously, the 98 version, we didn't have to worry about audited financial statements because a lot of the funds weren't audited. So that's an included. All right, so closing deadline for comments is the 10th of August. Um, we have received already some, I have received some comments already. Uh, we're hoping by virtue of the fact that it's already been to the largest employers or the large employers, we shouldn't have too much new stuff coming in. Um, we will then consolidate all the comments and... If necessary, we may, if, if, if we can't get agreement on, on some of the things, we may run a sessional meeting in Joburg and Cape Town to, to thrash through the details um, as is necessary before going to council for final, final adoption. And that's it from me. Any questions? Okay, Tommy, over to you. <laughs> Thank you, Natasha. Due to the abundance of questions, I'm sure you're going to um, allow me to keep you busy for the next hour. So... <laughs> But I won't do that. Um, I'll, I'll try to be short. But, but I do think this is the important session to just update you with what, what is happening. And the, this PGN is something that is very important. You know, the fact that we didn't just rush through and, and, and uh, revise it and put something out there means that it does take, attention, take our attention. It, it influences what we need to do. Now, I think in a sense we've been overtaken a bit by regulation that the, the registrar brought out. So we, we need to regain the initiative but to do the right thing and to, to act as leaders in the profession. So I think um, this, this would put us there. But please give your comment and we can, we can take that on. Um, what I want to do is I'll give you a brief update. Um, you can put this uh, show on. Okay, I've been in the pensions field for, field for a few years and uh, this is the most exciting time to be a pensions actuary ever, and I think in, in living in, in history, not even living history, because there's, there's so much happening. You know, whenever have you heard of people marching in the streets about pensions? You know, pensions are supposed to be this boring dead-end job there at the end. Once when you retire, you get the benefit of it, but you don't want to think about it too much um, beforehand. But now people are striking. There's uh, people that are very unhappy about pensions. So... This is an opportunity for us as actuaries to really play a leading role in, in what, uh, what guides this very important aspect of people's savings. So um, this is a headline in France. This is uh, 3.5 million people. <laughs> How many people that is to march for pen about pensions? That is something that struck me. Greece, it Italy, and then yeah, you see <laughs> the people are unhappy with their pensions. Just going to take you through to the through the RMC structure briefly, um, and this is by way of also saying thank you to everybody contributing over the years, uh, especially the last year, which has been a busy one, to represent you in the profession. Uh, Natasha mentioned the large number of um, responses we had to make. I think there were even a few more if you count into last year. So it has been a busy time, and this is actually the take their personal time effectively to to contribute. So I want to say thank you to them. I'm just going to briefly go through the RMC, the structure, and then talk about the reform proposals. Um, and there's one bullet that's hidden there, and that's talk about valuation exemptions. And that's basically the most important thing that I want to touch upon. This is the committee, fairly sizable, but I must say everybody is contributing. So thank you each and everyone for, for your participation. 
they, we've got a few subcommittees. Uh, the practicing certificates headed up by Sean, um, core reading syllabus, Marley. Natasha has taken over PGNs and legislation, and then um, Costa looking after sessional meetings and this uh, conference. Again, you know, we, we, you heard this morning sessions, and you can, I think, get an idea of how much input is going to be required by actuaries in the next few years. You know, we're looking at a, at a, at a uh, massive change to our pension structure, and I believe that actuaries have got a tremendous contribution to make. Um, in the RMC, you know, we only a few people, so we're going to value any offers of support, additional comment. We can channel it through. You've heard that there's a comment that you can make even direct, but if you want, we can channel the comments of the profession and maybe have a strong voice to, to, to uh, effect re, um, good changes um, in, this, in this process. Quickly on the valuator certificates, we've had a look at updating uh, the requirements and the forms as well. That will be on the website shortly. Um, and also there's been a request that, you know, we are responsible as an actual society to recommend to the financials, to the registrar effectively, that a person is adequately qualified to act as a valuator. It's a statutory role, so it's not something that we can just take lightly. And we do ask that you provide sufficient in detail in your CPD records to enable us to assess the relevance of that experience of yours. You know, so don't take that as a bureaucratic thing that we just want to increase the paper load, paperwork load. Um, it is something that we need to do to assure the registrar that you are qualified to act as a, as a, in that statutory role as valuator. Um, the core reading and syllabus, one important aspect is we, we should have written, started writing the phase uh, second level exams this year. I don't know when it's going to start. And uh, it's, it's fortunate that we have a bit more time because there is work going on to see how we can extend the syllabus of the actuarial, um, well, of pensions actuaries to include enough so that we don't need to write the exams. Um, or four phase. Um, but to date, you know, our syllabus have excluded a large portion of the phase legislation of our South African requirements. So we are trying to update that to get exemption from the phase exams. Um, Natasha mentioned the PGNs under review, um, and I just want to then talk about the one on valuation exemptions. Last year, you'll recall that we had a fairly heated debate about valuation exemptions, this valuation that can now be given in perpetuity. You know, is actuary is going to be pushed aside forever? Many people felt strongly that, you know, can you ever give a valuation exemption and, and not even know what's happening in a fund in the future? So we've had some strong comments on that. After that, we went to the, to the Financial Services Board, talked with them, and they indicated that they realized the value that actuaries are bringing, but they've got a concern, I think, to a large extent, that the smaller funds... To have an actuary and have a valuation is something that um, increases the, the cost load in their, in their mind. And in that, I think we need to take some responsibility as well to see where can we add value. So that's the one side of it. You know, I think we should see where can we add value without just trying to protect our jobs. It's one thing we should be sensitive to, you know, not being seen. You know, they're taking away our work, so let's just kick back and try and resist. So we need to act in the public interest, yeah. But there are a few concerns that, that I have, and uh, I've spoken to a number of people, and I want to just raise it here and uh, ask a few questions about valuation exemptions. There are a few. The one is that this is now something that happens forever. You know, once once you've given that exemption, um, you can uh, never never see uh, that fund again. Um, is that something that you want to do? That you can do in good conscience. And then there are three other particular points that you need to certify. And I just want to get your feedback as what you think about that. That would then guide us in what do we do to draft guidance. This note of the FSB is fairly exact in what it requires. So it's just something that we need to certify. This is, and this is what, what we have to do. It says, in my opinion, the value of the assets equal or exceed the value of the liabilities. And then the important bit is at the level of each member's individual account and at fund level. And I'll ask some questions on each of these paragraphs just to get your feedback. Second one is the assets appropriate considering the liabilities. Third, and then again, it says without referring to individual calculations, method used to allocate um, the uh, funds are appropriate. 
or based on sound principles, and then the appointment of evaluator and valuations uh, are unnecessary effectively in future. So if I can get your feedback on um, some, of, some of these aspects, please, the first one. I phrased the, the four questions in the same, the same vein, so it'll be exactly the same. First one says, I can only sign this paragraph after I've done a full valuation. Second one is, I, can, I will sign it without a valuation, but then I need to know the, the system and the, the administrator system well. Third is, I'll sign it without a valuation being performed. And the fourth is, I will not sign. Okay, um, thanks for that. Yeah, I, I do think the, the level of its members' individual account do place some obligation on us. Remember, this is something that the FSB brings out, so it may be that they change it, but we'll give this feedback back to them. Second one, 3.2, the assets are appropriate considering the liabilities of the fund. I've just kept the same um, questions just to keep it simple. Okay, thank you. That's a bit surprising. I would have expected more in the three area because it's only, this is a, just assets, liabilities. But okay, thanks for that feedback. Then the 3.3 um, says, without referring to individual calculations, uh, method the method used to apportion the, the, the funds to the accounts are based on sound principles. Thank you. That, this is the interesting one. Does it make sense to me? You know, you'd want to know what's happening and how that method is uh, is working. Okay, then 3.4, last one. The appointment of evaluator and valuations are unnecessary. Um, can we continue so long, or then we can do that? Well, is that okay? No, okay. Yeah. Thank you. That's a, um, what you expected. <laughs> I'm just going to go back a bit on mine. I think. Based on that last answer, uh, the reason why I've put these questions out to you and, and uh, the feedback system works well, this, thanks for your feedback, we'll feed that back to the FSB for one, and then we'll consider that in the drafting guidance. But, but this does confirm that we do need guidance. Now, we've had the feedback that many actuaries are just not signing valuation exemptions because they do not feel comfortable with um, exempting a fund forever. Now, I know based on my experience, I've seen many errors coming out um, so you don't want to lose that oversight. So I, I hope the people who saw, said, I won't sign it, do it out of their concern for the profession and that funds will be run effectively. Because if that's the case, then I believe we will be able to convince funds uh, and, and boards of trustees that we add value. We act as, a, as, a, as, a, as an independent check. If it's just something that we do to prevent... <laughs> the um, uh, ball from going past our hands into the goal mouth and being lost forever, then I think it's not the right thing to do because we, we, we need to act in the public interest and we can't just try and protect our statutory role because we're in a position to say I won't sign it. So I'm hoping that if people refuse to sign, they do help their funds with an alternative option, uh, potentially suggesting um, a different valuator, maybe an internal valuator to the administrator, or, or try and give them some option because it will reflect very badly on us, especially if it comes out in the media. So these group of privileged people have got a statutory role to fulfill and they're now blocking the whole system. So, so that's, please, that, that's, and I don't believe any of you are, are doing that, but there's a strong, a fine line between being seen to protect our own interests and to be seen in protecting the industry. So um, if we, we will try and move fast on this as well, and I'll, I think this feedback should be of concern to the FSB. They did mention that they didn't get as much um, valuation exemptions through as they'd expected, and I think this confirms that there may be a problem, and, and we'll see how we can address it. Thanks for that. Um, I mentioned a few of these slides I've talked through, but I believe that the actuary has a a massively important role to fulfill as an independent check. And I think most people who've been in the industry for a long time can confirm that you found things that the auditors just missed. You know, I've, uh, many people I know have got this chicken and egg situation that the auditor don't want to sign the audit before the evaluator has finished his valuation. And uh, we can't do the valuation until the audit has been finalized. And I think the reason for that is auditors have seen that value valuators or actuaries find errors, or not, not really errors, but do find things in the accounts that could be <laughs> improved, if we can put it that way. And if that's the case, then I think we are adding value. And if we can continue doing that, then it will be clear that we, we are acting in the best interest of the profession. But I think uh, important for us is that we need to convince boards of trustees as well. 
And if we can combine that with a more cost-effective, cost-efficient offering, um, and it may then not even be a, a, a full valuation, but something that adds the expertise that we can give to the fund and, and help to improve the fund's governance, um, then I think we'll, be, we'll, be, we'll play an, be playing an important role. So watch the space, but we'll, we'll take this further. If necessary, we'll convene a, a more formal workshop or a session meeting with an extended time to, to, to work through um, something that, that, uh, that, that we can use as guidance. Last point I think that I need to just touch on briefly is, is mortality assumptions. We have been asking your feedback and support for two things. There's a longevity investigation. So if you've received information on that and you can contribute, please do so. The other one is that the statistical CSI, our mortality investigation committee, are looking at updating our mortality uh, assumptions for pensioners. Um, and if, you've got, if you can contribute to the data there, I know there's been a lot of people that are doing good work on that, but please help us to update that so that we can see where we are going with mortality. Uh, personally, I've, been, I've, I've actually been shocked to, to look at the long-term trends in mortality. And I'm wondering whether we are doing enough to anticipate uh, the future improvements in mortality. If you see what had happened in Europe, and um, even if you look at long-term trends in Africa, and that's broader Africa, not even the insured population in South Africa, which I think has got a, a better group progression, then we are looking at significant improvements in mortality. And even if we say, you know, defined contribution funds not really our, our responsibility, it, it is. Um, because we help save people for a sufficient amount of after retirement um, income. So if we use mortality rates that are, that are too high, then we'll underestimate what people would need as a, as a pension or as capital to buy a pension. So please just ask that you just make sure that you are working on um, uh, good assumptions and maybe showing sensitivity to clients where, where you are um, uh, involved. I think this is the last bit that I've got. So if there's any questions, um, just closing and thanks. And I'll, I just want to touch briefly on some of the things that, that, that stood out for me. And I'm not going to be long, but I do think this, I don't know if you agree with me, but this was a fascinating day for me. And, and in, in many ways, a very inspiring one. Because for many years, we in the pensions field, we see there's a national fund coming on, many of our clerks, smaller funds that may close. You know, is this a viable profession long term? What should we change to? You know, how many years have we got left? You know, that's sort of the discussion amongst many pensions actuaries. But from especially this morning sessions on annuities, what's going wrong, what can be done, you know, I, I think we've got a massive role to play and, and not think, you know, we should play a massive role in um, guiding the thinking and contributing to solve this problem of, of, of people retiring with sufficient uh, money. Now, the, on the one hand, we've, we've talked about, and I, I think Clem said that there's many, there's many different scenarios and maybe things that may happen that we're not thinking of regularly. You know, there's... Uh, I think that should be an opportunity to do some scenario planning, some stress testing on some of the funds to show clients, you know, what can people expect to retire on? You know, we've got the skills to project a pension, um, convert it, that capital savings to a, a, an annual pension amount and see what impacts on that. And I would hope that we can do a lot more to um, show people what are the dangers of low returns, longevity, things like that. So that, that's an opportunity that, that I think is very real for us. Um, I think David mentioned the dangers of uh, the, well, the wrong annuities that are, that are, that are bought or sold, <laughs> will be the better phrase. And they, I think we've also got a big role to play. You know, as pensions actuaries, and I know I've been on the pension side and then on the life side, and I mostly came back to pensions because... In a pension fund, we look after the interests of members. You know, there's a paternalistic feel. You know, we care and we want to give back to members who maybe haven't got the knowledge that we have got. Um, and if we've got that caring attitude, then we shouldn't just look at just the accumulation phase and leave the member out in the cold to get his own pension at his best terms and leave him for the wolves if there are wolves out there. Now, I think there's been fantastic suggestions made both 
well, flowing from David's and then by John and um, Eric and, uh, and Arthur as well, on what can be done on, on, on annuities. On the, you know, last year, Anthony Asher talked about the harvesting phase, the decumulation phase of pensions. And that is a very big opportunity for actuaries to become involved in. And I want to challenge us to, to get involved. The, 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 the time is ripe. You know, this, these papers of Treasury will be coming out in the next weeks, month or so. And um, that is a chance for us to, to make a real contribution. And more than just a contribution, I think there's stuff that we can start implementing or discussing with clients to improve the situation of pension fund members, and especially those retiring. One comment just on Megan's presentation uh, is also, it struck me the, the massive impact on bond yields and the big impact that has on the pension amount. You know, the investment returns less so than that one point of retirement and how big that influence is. Um, and one solution that's now happening in Europe is people are extending their retirement ages, retiring later. Um, but uh, in Africa, we sit with a unique problem with the youth unemployment. And she said it can be solved. But I was at a conference in Africa, up in Africa a few, a month or two ago. And I was, the one thing that struck me is that when somebody talked about retirement ages, a number of people stood up from different countries and were very, uh, almost aggressive in saying that the retirement ages should come down, you know, not up, you know. We used to, the Europe people should live longer, people are living longer, they should work longer and accumulate more. There's a very strong move in African countries to say these fortunate people who have got jobs must clear the way for younger people to get an opportunity to get into the workplace. And a much stronger move than I had in my mind. So um, I, it is something that I think is a unique feature of, of Africa and definitely in South Africa as well. So with that, I can, I can just say that, you know, this, this has been a fantastic conference and thank you to Costa and his team with the uh, Cornet, Julia, um, in arranging it. I, th I think the debate and the present, the, the speakers, and the, the choice of, of speakers and topics has really been something that will not only make, make us think, but make us think and then give us something to implement and to improve uh, our industry. So thank you for putting it together. Rowan, thank you very much for, for your um, acting as, as, as a master of senior ceremonies. And then we didn't say thank you to Costa and these guys. Thanks. Thanks. I know that there's always a lot of varying behind the scenes, but in terms of the content that came through here, uh, uh, really impressive. Thank you. Thanks also to our sponsors, APSA and Sunlum. Um, they made it possible that we could have Clem Santa here and even the review system, things like that, and keep your costs down. So thank you to them. And yeah, the last one, just thank to you for attending and being patient. And I hope you've had as much out of this day as, as I did. And let's implement it and make a change in the future. Thank you so much.